Hi, thanks so much for tuning into the Nonprofit Mastermind Podcast. Each week, I do a deep dive into the strategies and mindset behind launching, scaling, and leading a high-impact nonprofit. I'm your host, Brooke Ritchie Babbage. Thanks for joining me. This week's conversation is with one of my favorite leaders, Lafrey Ski. She's a friend, a colleague, and a superstar in my Impact Accelerator. Lafrey is an accomplished musician, an imaginationist, and the executive director at Willie May Rock Camp, where she's created the innovative and transformational Willie May Future Sounds STEAM-based curriculum. I've been excited to talk with Lafrey on this podcast for a number of reasons. First, I think that her story of stepping into the executive director role at Willie May at a time of great flux and stewarding the growth of the organization through a pandemic is instructive and inspirational for other leaders. As I reference in our conversation, the organization has grown tremendously in both budget and impact in the under two years that she's been at the helm. And I've wanted to shine a light on her journey and experience as part of a broader dialogue, opening up and creating transparency about what leadership actually looks like in practice. The second reason I've been excited to talk to LaFrey is more personal. She and I vibe out all the time via email and on some of our coaching calls about the role that having an intentional abundance and gratitude practice has played in both of our lives. She leads from a place of abundance and gratitude. And I've wanted to talk for a long time with her on this show to invite her to share what that means and looks like in practice and how those practices have helped her stay grounded and avoid overwhelm and burnout during the craziness of these past years. Finally, I just love shedding light on incredible leaders as part of this podcast and the phrase an incredible leader. This is a great conversation. I hope you enjoy. Hey, LaFrey, welcome. Hi, Brooke. Thank you. I am so excited to be having this conversation with you, actually officially on the air. I love our conversations off the air. Um, so I'm really honored that you're spending this time with me today. Oh, the feeling's mutual, Brooke. Thank you. <laughs> so when I reached out to you, to see if you would join me for a conversation on the podcast. Um, I shared that there are a couple of things I'm really excited to talk to you about. So one is your journey as the leader of Willie Mae Rock Camp and um, sort of what the last year and a half, almost two years have looked like. You guys have undergone just really incredible growth during the pandemic um, and just, your journey and experience as a leader um, and what that has felt like and where you started and how you got here and all of that sort of fun stuff. And then the other thing, and I think these are related, are the practices that you engage in that you and I have talked about around abundance practice and gratitude practice and meditation um, and the role that those have played, I think, in grounding you um, during these last couple years. And one of the things I've always appreciated from the beginning of our work together is how open and how open you are and how central those things are to how you even talk about your leadership and how you move through the world. And I think that has helped us to work really well together. So I'm excited to have that conversation also. 
Um, so let's dive in with you. How did you find your way to being the executive director of Willie May Rock Camp? You are a musician, an amazing musician in your own right. Um, what is it about the, the organization that brought you that brought you here to this to this place? Well, Willie May Rock Camp was the second rock camp that was created in the United States centering girls and gender non-conforming youth musically. The first one was in Portland, Oregon, and it was directly connected to the riot girl movement, music musical movement. So I read about it in a magazine, and so one day I saw a sign and that they were going to do one in New York, and I went to the volunteer meeting, and we did a tremendous amount of processing around how we would hold ourselves in the space, what are the things we wanted the students to, or the participants to walk away with, what experiences were important, what, what we needed to protect them from, how we were going to get donations, wh where we were gonna move in the space. It was, it, we were all volunteers. And, and when was this? How long ago was this? Oh, this is 04. Oh, a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. It was a challenge for me because I am a jazz musician, a full-time Yes. And taking a full week or two to be involved in this thing for eight hours a day was challenging on a financial level, but mm -hmm. I made it work. And I walked away from really, really made, just shifted in my own personal understanding of the beauty of music, building community, and uh, how, how to communicate using sound. And I'll just tell you really quickly, I, I studied as, you know, jazz is basically like a classical music and it requires mm -hmm. a high level of technical study. And what, these kids were coming to Willie Mae Rock Camp saying like, I wanna play bass, never held a bass. You know, they get one or two lessons and try to learn a couple notes. And I was a band coach and I saw a young, a young girl who um, had no facility on the base whatsoever, but she had a decent time, and mm -hmm. even with the lessons. So she could play the devil out of the E string in the most steady way, and the band wrote their song around her single note, and it was such a powerful, impactful piece called uh, Screw You Loser, I Am Not An Option. And um, it was amazing. Oh, that's fantastic. I walked away from that realizing that it does not take a tremendous amount of ability to inspire and get people exercising their voices and their creativity. And that shifted me in my personal work when I went away from Willie Mae, which eventually mm -hmm. I did because I can't volunteer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so many years later, I came back as a teaching artist. They would call me in to do special workshops. Uh, I started my own NGO called Groove Diplomacy based upon a groove makes you move and movement creates unity, community, and change. Mm -hmm. These were the things I really learned to be of service through music and also the power of uplifting um, actually systematically excluded young people, um, yeah. in particular girls, and we've created programs in 38 countries. So I brought, I brought my experience wow. to the world. And yeah. then eventually I came back to Willie Mae and I was approached about stepping into the position. And the last thing I wanted to do <laughs> was run a fantasy camp, rock and roll camp for girls um, at that point. 
But the founding executive director said to me, you know, if you could think of something different, I could really get behind mm -hmm. that. And that gave me permission to think outside of the box. Yeah. And I imagined a different Willie Mae and I created Willie Mae Future Sounds, the curriculum, uh, and proposed it to the board. And then they hired me as executive director. I love that journey for so many reasons. And, um, you know, one of them is you talk about those sort of initial two weeks back in 04, what you got from that you brought into your world, into your professional development over, you know, 15 years, more than 15 years. And then interestingly, you brought all of what you do and who you are as a musician outside of Willie Mae back into Willie Mae um, and transformed the organization that sort of helped transform you. So tell us about Willie Mae Future Sounds. What What is it? And I know it, it brings in a lot of your interest in Black futurism and I mean, there's, it's really rich. Right, well, so Willie Mae is uh, the name of Big Mama Thornton, Willie Mae Big Mama Thornton, the blues uh, multi-instrumentalist and composer who wrote and sang Hound Dog before Elvis, Ball and Chain that Janis Joplin sang. And uh, so we stand on the shoulders of Willie Mae and the tradition of the great blues women who really paved the way for us. And so I imagined a world where, because the blues is a very futuristic music, it comes from the African-American tradition. Mm -hmm. It does not require high level of technical ability. It's more about feeling, but, yeah. but blues people also have a high technical ability as well. Don't get it twisted. Mm -hmm. So I imagined a curriculum that would be year round, not a summer camp. That would be the intersection of STEM, uh, imagination, Afrofuturism, experimentalism, and listening. My mother always jokes with me, that's a very busy intersection. That's kind of all of these things meet in this program called Willie Mae Future Sounds. Mm -hmm. And what's the role that you see Afrofuturism playing in that? Because I think that from my, so my first intersection with Willie Mae Rock Camp for Girls is what it used to be called, was a little more than a decade ago when I was still running my organization. And one of my mentors, um, who was pro bono counsel at one of the law firms here, and she and I had gotten to know each other as women lawyers doing you know, social impact work, was really involved um, in the camp. And they would have these performances, and I would go, and I, I loved it. Um, one of the things that I've been really excited about, about your vision and what you bring into the organization, which I think really represents a shift in their focus, is this um, integration, part of the busy intersection being Afrofuturism, um, which is a particular sort of way of thinking about um, the future and futurism. It's a particular way of orienting Black people, and I know you work with black and brown girls in a future of their own imagination through music. And that I think is, is different than, you know, five, six years ago, what the, the explicit objection, objective of Willie Mae Rock Camp was. Um, what do you see as that, uh, the role that that plays in how you'd like the girls that you work with to be transformed? 
Oh, that's a really great question. Uh, well, first of all, um, I want the experience and the definition of music to be challenged by the students through experimentalism. Um, generally, it's sort of a threat if somebody says, mess around and find out. However, that is the Willie Mae scientific method. And we have a neon sign in our space that says, number one, mess around, number two, find out. Uh, it is about making mistakes. It is about being strong and wrong. It is about listening. It is about trying to create a sound that you've never heard before and not yeah. be locked into a box of this is what music is. And uh, because one thing that I'm very clear on is that the, the corporate music industry is very behind the times and they are not allowing our black and brown youth to be free. Yeah. So by going through this process, they use music as an opportunity to not only learn about well, how a sequencer works, but the science behind that, and then connecting that to black quantum futurism, and then also learning the physics of time travel. Yeah. So it engages sort of all of the parts of their brain and their mind. And I just, I love that. Um, so let's go back to the beginning of your experience as an ED of this amazing organization. Um, and and we'll, we'll come forward from there. Let's start with how is the organization when you first arrived and what were your hopes and dreams at that point in time? I know it was, you know, the beginning of the pandemic and, and it was um, coming out of a pause, bring us back to the world as it existed when you first became ED. And I'll tell you why I'm asking this way, not at all to sort of uplift, you know, behind the scenes institu institutional challenges, which, you know, any ED is like, wait a minute, how am I supposed to answer this question? Um, but because I think that, you know, having been an executive director of a small and growing organization, we can often feel like we are out on a limb, like our crazy is unique, right? And that, you know, I look around and I'm like, well, that organization's board is perfect or that ED, you know, doubled their budget and it feels like a black box. And I think that just hearing from a real ED that there's been a journey, that there was work to do, um, you know, that there were amazing things about the organization when I got here and some things I needed to work on, we don't often get to hear that from other EDs. So we don't, we can't, um, we can't see that our crazy is not crazy. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. <laughs> it does. Uh, so Willie May, I don't think, I'm not sure that Willie May was envisioned to be a growing uh, nonprofit. I, I believe that potentially Willie May took on the 5013C status to maintain eligibility for a certain level of funding mm. without a plan for incremental growth. So um, also a challenge that I came into was the aftermath of the organization for various number of reasons, not being able to make the jump from the founding executive director to the next step. Um, so the thing is, is that fortunately, uh, the board 
was a working board and they rolled their sleeves up and the board held the organization together and they brought in an interim that didn't have the programmatic expertise but enough know-how to keep the organization from completely hitting the skids yeah. uh, and they paused program for the programming for the first time and mm-hmm. they needed a, a something to believe in and some and a way to pivot yeah but yeah. i have to i have to shout out the board for stepping yeah. up and, yeah. and really handling things and yeah. i'm really grateful for that uh so i brought in a new idea, a new vision, a fresh look, an opportunity for growth, a three-year vision. Mm-hmm. I just started, you know, one of the most important parts of my practice is pen and paper. Mm-hmm. I, I write things down and I wrote down programs where I wanted to see things go in one year, two years, three years. Yes. That process during yeah. this time. I was hired as programming manager while the interim executive director was still on board with the understanding that I would become executive director at the end of her tenure. I have to say, I think you highlight a a couple things that are really, really important to lift up about sort of this initial stage of your journey. One is clarity, right? Organizations go through shifts, they go through pivots, they, you know, I cannot tell you how many organizations that I've talked to that have paused some or all of their programs that have had to pivot, especially in the last, say, two or three years, um, as funding streams have really shifted. And then, of course, we headed into the pandemic. So everything you're describing about the organizational history, like, that's really common. You know, a lot of organizations, when they're started, are started because they do amazing work, but the sort of bigger vision infrastructure, where are we going in three years and five years, what's the institution that we're building, isn't why the founder started, right? right. They didn't start to think about that. They started to do the amazing work. <clears throat> and organizations can sit there for decades. Um, and so you coming in and, and giving the board, as you said, a clear vision that they could get behind and be excited about about that clarity of vision is so central to what I think has enabled you guys to grow, right? There, there has to be a North Star. The second thing um, is the board. You've been really clear since we started about how grateful you are for the board's faith in your vision, for the fact that they have been a working board. Um, and I think um, that that's really powerful right? That that partnership is something um, that we, you know, I hear a lot about, oh, what isn't my board doing, right? A lot of organizations focus on the gap between the ideal board and where their board is. And it's really refreshing to hear you say, you know, we're, we're all still growing and working, but there's a partnership here, right? And we figure that out. Um, so I just, I want to lift those two things up because I think that ED board partnership piece and the clarity of vision that you brought um, are really important foundations for what has been a, a really great year and a half. So, so what about your hopes and dreams? When you came in and you looked around, you know, you talked about the shift in mission and, and programmatic focus, but what were you hoping for as an ED? Where did you want to be as a leader in a year? Um, yeah, what did you hope your sort of life as ED looked like 
a year from after you got there? Well, I wanted to expand the impact through the creation mm -hmm. of new partnerships. And I wanted to open our in-person space, the Creative yeah. Sound Lab. And uh, I wanted to entice people who supported the organization in the past to come back. Yeah. And I wanted to create a way to also invite new supporters to come to the table. Yeah. And just to dig a little bit deeper, why? Like, why was it exciting and important to you to create this in-person space to invite supporters to join you? And I, I ask because I think a lot of times when we talk about our hopes and dreams and next I'm going to just a heads up, I'm going to ask you about challenges and fears. Um, so get ready. Um, but a lot of times, you know, we stay in our heads. Right. And, and I am absolutely someone who does this. People ask, you know, when I was whatever I'm doing, what are your hopes and dreams? And and my answer is very cerebral. I want to grow blank. Um, but I'm really interested in sort of why. Why were those the things you wanted to do? What was motivating and exciting to you as the person who said, I'm going to leave my full time or shift my full time job as a really successful musician and step into this very difficult role. There's some reason you wanted to do that. It really felt like uh, the next step from where I had come from the opportunity mm. to take what I learned. First I was at Willie Mae and then I went out to the world mm -hmm. and then coming back to Willie Mae, I could take those lessons and continue to build something that would be of impact. Yeah. The space was important to me because, well, you know, Sun Ra says space is the place, but I had worked in a situation before where we had a wonderful space for the students to work and they had a sense of ownership and pride that helped them buy in and engage even further. So mm -hmm. I really wanted to have a space like that for Willie Mae. And the, I think that for me, my core values, I learned pretty quickly um, it, when I moved to New York to become a player, uh, musician player, uh, I learned pretty quickly that my disposition is too cloudy for the game. Uh, I didn't interesting in a record deal and, and signing away all my ownership. Immediately started touring with major label artists and, and the, the, the remuneration was not even. So I, I started yeah. to realize and crystallize that oh, I'm not really here for entertainment. What I love about music is how it empowers, how it can build community, and yeah. um, the spirituality of it. Yeah. So yeah. I, and, and being of service. And that is my yeah. medium through which to be of service. So, yeah. and that's what we do at Willie Mae. I think that's beautiful. What I, I love that you said is what I'm really here for Right. We are all in, you and I've talked about this. I genuinely believe that each one of us is here for a purpose. Mm -hmm. And that if we look back, you know, at my age, I have decades that I can look back at and try to understand the through line, right? What's the thing that has kept me motivated? Um, and that's why I always love to ask <clears throat> when I talk with people 
um, who are leaders of organizations, we spend so much of our time talking to people about the mission of the organization and trying to get supporters for the mission of this institution. But there's a deeper intersection between the organization you've chosen to lead and your personal why, your purpose. Um, and I just, I think you articulated that really beautifully. And I think that's where the energy to do the hard work comes from, right? Also, I have to say though, that on that realization in, on my path, my journey has been through a tremendous amount of failure or perceived <laughs> failure or mm -hmm. challenges. Uh, so it, it's not like everything's just been going right all this time. I, it's, it's about like, okay, let me figure this out. Let me reflect. Yeah. Or even as you mentioned the road, getting a decade down the path and looking back and seeing yeah. that's why this happened. I was absolutely here. Absolutely. So what have been some of your biggest challenges and fears over the last 18 months in this journey? Um, and that's, you know, that's a bit of an intimate question. It's also, it can be a tricky question because sometimes you have to get a little ways down the path to look back and be like, oh, that, that was, I didn't realize I was going through a challenge, but that was a challenge. Um, but I'm interested because I think you're right that in a moment, I'm going to ask for a snapshot of where you guys are now and, and just the just amazing transformation and growth you guys have undergone. I think it's important to contextualize that, right? Like you said, it hasn't all just been, you arrive and you snap your fingers and a year and a half later, here we are with triple the budget and the board, you know. Um, what have been some of the tough things that you've had to navigate? Uh, COVID. <laughs> that, right? The 19, uh, because uh, that really, made it difficult for us to do the things that I wanted to do most effectively in at mm -hmm. least in my estimation in person. Yeah. Uh, but we were able to fortunately get into our partnership schools during the school day. And yeah. in the end, we served more students than through the after school program. So that was that was a challenge. Also, it was it was a real challenge to um, try to move forward with my plan. When, yeah. When, yeah. when everywhere I went, there was a roadblock, including what was going on uh, sociopolitically in the world. When yeah. I, you know, and so how could we go into a classroom and encourage this type of creativity without acknowledging Breonna Taylor? And yeah. George Floyd and and the the myriad of things that continue to kind of happen and stream down and affect the young people that we serve. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, but the uh, so that was that was definitely a challenge. Also, um, I didn't get in this thinking that I was an ED. I'm a I'm a leader. I know how to lead a band leader, you know, or a project <laughs> leader. But yeah. as an ED. I had a tremendous amount of learning curve and still do. Mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. still do, but I'm not afraid to ask for help. No, you aren't. <laughs> That's fantastic. That's why it works, really. <laughs> that has served me. Also, I have a really strong awareness of my strengths and weaknesses, and yeah. I'm really lucky to surround myself with people that 
complement my weaknesses with their strengths. And, and I have a fantastic team and the board and, and we're continuing to grow and develop. I, I think some of it is luck and I think some of it isn't. Um, I think it takes a, a really tremendous amount of self-awareness for people to be comfortable saying, I am aware of my strengths and I am aware of the places where I'm not strong and I'm okay as the leader bringing in people who are stronger than me in this area so that we can all be strong together. I don't, you do it so naturally that I, I don't know if you realize not everybody does. <laughs> and I think, um, you know, I think that can lead to a lot of guilt and shame on the part of leaders. We can spend a lot of time beating ourselves up about, you know, well, I'm not good with budgets or spreadsheets aren't my thing or, you know, whatever the narrative is we have. Um, instead of saying, yeah, spreadsheets are not an area of strength for me. So let me bring in an ops person who's really good at that and we'll work together. Yeah, I have like this internal voice that I listen to for the most part. And so when it says jump, I jump. And <laughs> but I so I've always been that person, but I have other people on my team who are like, well, what is the data of the possibility of jumping right now? Um, <laughs> when is the right time to jump? How high Where are you going to land? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so and that's that's the balance in, and yeah. I'm grateful for that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so let's fast forward to January 2022. Give us a brief snapshot of where the organization is today. I know, you know, I've mentioned your budget has grown, your board has become more developed, your programming has grown, you're serving more people. How does the organization look different now than it did, um, you know, this time a year ago? Well, um, we have a space for the first time. Lillimay has a space. We, we did uh, some fundraising, some crowd fundraising, community fundraising, mm -hmm. and we also received support to get this state-of-the-art creative sound lab. We yeah. have an immersive sound system in the space, Quadraphonic, uh, for the students to study spatial audio. These are the types of things that most people don't even interact with until they're at the college level or mm -hmm. at a MoMA gallery. Uh, we started with three partnership schools when I came in, mm -hmm. and now we have nine. Uh, yeah. we, we are starting our second cohort of an after-school program, the Willie Mae Future Sounds uh, Digital Mentorship Program. We engaged a COVID medical advisor, so we have a layered COVID policy. And fortunately, because of the height of our ceiling and the volume of our space and the ceiling fans and the fact that we can have windows open with precautions, we can program in person on a limited basis. So, yeah. and, and we are we are serving those kids that all through COVID still needed some place to be after school. Some place to go. Absolutely. That's incredible. What are you most proud of over the last year? I am most proud of the execution of the vision and the buy-in um, from the staff and the board and people. Uh, we're kind of in this, if you build it, they will come phase. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm really grateful to see that starting to kind of happen. Wonderful. So I'd like to go even a little bit deeper um, and talk about the how for all of this, right? 
sort of walked through the journey, where you've come from, where the organization has come from, where you guys are now. Um, and I have, from the beginning of our time working together, been really inspired and impressed by how openly, and I, I mentioned this at the beginning, you talk about the ideas of abundance and gratitude as practices um, in your life and in your leadership. And I would love for you to share a little bit about how you see these practices as having maybe helped keep you grounded mm -hmm. as an organizational leader um, in the face of a pandemic, in the face of programmatic shifts and growth. Um, because I think that they're, they're really important practices in my own life. Mm -hmm. And I just, um, I think a lot of times when people talk about or hear others talk about abundance and gratitude, they think of these sort of high in the clouds, walk around smiling and feeling like the universe is just going to send you, you know, money on a cloud. Um, but they're practices, right? They're, they're things that you do. Um, and I think you do them well and you are intentional about them. So I'd love to have you share a little bit about your practices and the role that you feel like they've played um, in the last year and a half. At Willie Mae, we teach the science of sound and the art of deep listening, or we rock the science of sound <laughs> and the art of deep listening. Part of the way that I, I, my interest and knowledge, my thirst for knowledge around understanding listening really kind of put me on the path that we're calling a spiritual practice. Mm -hmm. And it, it, was, it was around learning how to listen to music and then deep listening, um, very inspired by a great musician, an artist named Paulina Laveros, who started a thing called deep listening. And it's, it's really about just kind of being connected and can allowing ourselves to be connected in the world around us. Mm -hmm. And this process of deep listening has had me on a path that has had me try different types of meditation and uh, and then a gratitude practice and grounding. And so these are things that I've had in my own personal practice. Mm -hmm. But when 20, when the pandemic started, yeah. I decided to um, put the rubber to the road. And I started writing in my gratitude journal between tasks and- Oh, wow. And, and pausing during the day. And mm -hmm. there's something about the grind that I've never taken to. And I understand mm -hmm. that, that that's motivating language for many people. And I understand why people say it, but it's the worst place for me to be my best. It is only by pausing and grounding myself in the morning. And grounding can look as simple, as complicated as you wanna make it, but really, you know, the whole reason why a tree doesn't blow over is because of the roots are grounded. So yeah. I, you know, I just think like a tree and ground myself and then I attach myself to my breath. Mm -hmm. um, and then, and then uh, sit quietly and, and then I listen and then I write in my gratitude journal. And then I look at my schedule for the day and I imagine 
the outcomes that I would like to have for each meeting and I send good energy towards those because what I've found through this whole process is that the energy has to come first mm. and so I put the energy first and then I just continue moving through the day and I get ready for the twists and turns that's the fun of it yeah so, yeah I'm really I'm really taken by your description of um, how you ground yourself. And I think the idea that the energy has to come first yes. is something, it's almost like when you, you sort of look back at a past version of yourself and people say, you know, what would you tell your past self? If you could tell, you know, give them one piece of advice. And I have to say, if I could tell my like 19 year old right at the beginning of everything self one thing. Mm. Um, I hadn't articulated it that way, but what you just said that the energy comes first, mm -hmm. um, that when you set your intention, when you're clear about the energy that you're sending into the spaces you're going into and into the conversations, and when you're honest about what that energy is that you're bringing, um, mm. that the results will follow. That has proven true in every arena of my life for the last, you know, close to 30 years. But if you had, if I had said that to 19 year old Brooke, who absolutely attaches herself to the, the grind as evidence of progress, as evidence of impact, that's exactly why I wanted to ask you about your practice, because what I have observed of you over the last, um, you know, now I think next month makes a year, um, that we've been working together is that the growth that your organization has undergone and the way that it's navigated very real challenges like every organization has had um, is a testament to your putting the energy first. I don't think it's an accident that you lead the way that you do and that you move through the world the way that you do with the practices that you have and that your organization has, you know, tripled its budget in a year. I, I think those are deeply, deeply related because you show up differently in conversations with major donors. You are in spaces in a different way that is inviting people in. These things, they matter. Um, they're not necessarily tangible and concrete, you know, like people want them to be, but they, they matter. And so I was really excited to hear you sort of articulate them. Thank you. Um, thanks for giving me the opportunity. And I have to say that one of the challenges of COVID with, with the students was to meet them on a social emotional level. So yeah. we started bringing this into the classroom and we made mm. it fun by uh, starting all classes with grounding and then breathing. Yeah. And we added a beat, we called it beat breathing. And then, uh, instead of having the students make a gratitude list, we made a game out of it, like categories, categories. No. <laughs> write everything down that you wrote before that starts with the letter T, go. And that really pushes one because when, when you start to make a, when I started making a gratitude list before I got playful with it, every day I was grateful for basically the same five to seven <laughs> things. Cause exactly. I still have over my head and I still have my family and I still have my health, you know? Yeah, so, yeah. So, we got to a point where we started asking the students to think of sounds that they were grateful for or flavors mm. that they were grateful for. And I remember 
One, one girl said that she was grateful for the sound of the oven clicking in the morning when her abuela was about to make tortillas for breakfast. Wow. Yeah. So that's like, that's what it's about. Connected. Yeah, it's everything. Absolutely. So um, I guess to close out this great conversation, thank you. Um, I would love for you to share maybe two pieces of advice. If you look back over your entire journey as an ED, from the first day you got the email from the board saying, we want you welcome to where we are now in this conversation. What would you say to another leader who is thinking about how to stay in it at their organization, grow their organization? Um, what have been the keys to your success and how would you advise them? very interesting i'm very much like you in terms of really embracing the flow and mm -hmm. water kind of um analogies and the thing is is that um i would encourage other eds facing similar challenges or just challenges to evaluate their organization uh, quite literally from a glass half full perspective and that mm. requires gratitude and gratitude is one way to do that and instead of looking at what you think your organization doesn't have, look at what you do have. And that's a really great starting point to build. Perhaps, look, we talked about how even with the board, like structure should serve function. And yes. we can get information as EDs that this is what your organization is supposed to look like. This is what your staff is supposed to look like. But does it really have to look like that? What is, what is working? Yeah. So take, 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 take stock of the assets before you start looking one starts looking at the the, mm -hmm. the challenges and then once you have a plan navigate it and just flow find the flow yeah and the flow some days is is a is a is a river and other days it's it's a pond you know yeah. on a sunny yeah. day and and some days <laughs> it's horrid 10 foot wave ocean, you know, it's like, yeah. so yeah, those would be my, that would be my advice. I love it. I will take that advice too. <laughs> um, <laughs> and on that note, I will say thank you again. This has been a great conversation. I always love obviously talking to you. Um, and I'm so happy we got to do it in this, um, in this format. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much. And Brooke, thank you so much for what you do by helping people who expand impact, expand their impact. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Have a wonderful day. You too. Thanks so much for joining me on this week's episode of the Nonprofit Mastermind Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on Apple or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you think that this podcast and the guests and our conversations could benefit another leader in your life, would love if you would share with your friends. Finally, if you'd like more leadership resources and strategies, sign up for my weekly newsletter, Leadership Forward 321. Each week, I curate and share three articles, two resources, and a quote on a theme. 
you can sign up at richiebabbage.com backslash leadership forward 321. That's all for now. Have a great week and I'll see you back here next week for more Mastermind.